Okay, well, hi, everybody. It's Toby Miller here from the Cultural Studies Podcast, and I'm here with Anna Crow and Ken Page at Privacy International. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. And the first thing I have to say is walking into Privacy International here in Clerkenwell, I guess we're in Clerkenwell. Yeah. I love the fact that Privacy International, all over it, has erasure. There's a black line through both words. Mm. Part of this made me think, fuck, I've gone to the wrong address. <laughs> or they just got ran out, ran out of town. And part of this made me think, this is interesting, what's going on here? So could either or both of you give me a read on the idea of Privacy International having these quite thick black lines through each word, yet being legible? Uh, well, I think um, I think a lot of people actually have the first response that you have, which is, oh no, did someone cross the name out? Um, <laughs> but, I mean, the, the idea behind the logo is that it represents um, the, the things that we keep, I suppose, behind closed doors to ourselves, the private sphere. Um, it's not representing censorship, but more the private aspect of our lives and showing that something always remains hidden and is private to ourselves. So it's like when we close the toilet door, yeah. It might still be our house and that might be public knowledge, yeah. but mm. there are bits of our lives, the abject parts or whatever, that we would just like to have to us. Exactly, exactly. The space to form your own opinions, to communicate with your loved ones, mm. to express yourselves in the privacy of your own space. Yeah, yeah I think like the, the private sphere really it allows for a greater sense of free expression and whether it's thinking out loud and then forming your own thoughts without having that fear that somebody's listening in or looking over your shoulder. Um, I think when even you're on, on a train or on a tube, you, you get the sense of encroaching on your personal space. Mm. And uh, I think people are very much aware that there's a difference between what you do in your private sphere as opposed to the public sphere. And I think even the logo itself kind of represents that. that it's, it's legible, it's still there, you can still read it, but it's just a little bit private as well, just just enough. Just it's, enough. it's that interesting difference between in the old days or now again today, looking over someone's shoulder in the underground and reading the afternoon paper, mm. as opposed to reading their electronic reading device where it might be Fifty Shades of Grey, yeah. or their telephone where it might be, mm. I hate you when I'm leaving you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you're allowed to read the football correspondence report yeah. over their shoulder on the paper, mm. yeah. but the other bit would be crossing a line. I guess that line is also represented perhaps by mm. the erasure. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a great interpretation of the logo. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's a, it's a good representation of how we've moved from newspaper, just, just the, the physical aspect of it to the more the digital, the, the technological aspect. Um, reading the news over someone's shoulders it's rude, but you know you kind of establish you put up with it. But you don't put up with someone reading your emails if you're on on the phone exactly on, on the yeah, tube yeah, as yeah. well. So there is that evolution of of how we how we adapt to our privacy in the modern world. Yeah, interesting. And I wonder if you could tell us something about there are probably many campaigns, but what Privacy International is working on right now. Well, I think Ken and I both work on fairly diverse aspects of um, Privacy International's work. So I can sort of tell you a bit about mine. Mm -hmm. perhaps can, can take over. So I work on a project which is relatively new to Privacy International which is called Aiding Privacy and it stems out of research that was carried out last year um, looking at the ways in which development and humanitarian aid might be facilitating surveillance, often unknowingly. So in situations where for example aid agencies are funding 
uh, increased border control initiatives in countries where you know a regime may be misusing those systems mm-hmm. for, to surveil people, to discriminate, to persecute. Um, and out of that project, which was looking at this problem more generally, came this discrete area of considering how humanitarian and development aid agencies are themselves protecting or not protecting the privacy of the people that they serve, of you know what are commonly called beneficiaries, although that's not that's not that's not to de- not to, de- to detract from individuals' status as rights holders, as citizens, as people within the world, but basically like how are these organisations protecting or not protecting beneficiary privacy? So are they in, um, kind of creating a culture amongst the people that they serve of always handing over information? Um, of using mobile phone networks or connecting to services that they may not understand the implications of. So my project looks at those concerns, so really about how development and humanitarian organisations ought to be collecting, storing, using, sharing data. Mm-hmm. Can I yeah. ask you about that? Because it seems as though this is an era when so-called aid organisations, whether they seek to be entrepreneurial or more statist, are insisting on more transparency. Yes. What, where's the line that you might draw between transparency and surveillance? Well, I think, um, I mean, that's a very interesting question. In, in the aid context, transparency is driven by this almost domestic demand for accountability in mm. terms of where are my tax dollars going? You know, what organisations are receiving them, tracing the money right down to the individual who's receiving them. So the, the impetus for transparency in a political sense isn't necessarily coming from a perspective of wanting to um, advance the human rights of the people who are being assisted by it, but rather to demand accountability of the government and its spending. Um, so there is this, this different motivation for transparency, but I think many of the people within the aid transparency movement itself are motivated really by the desire to get as much information as possible about aid initiatives to help them to link up, to help to understand the connections between them, the ways in which they can deliver aid more effectively, where there are inefficiencies, where there's duplication, really trying to improve on the ground the work that's going on. Um, In terms of where the line lies between transparency and privacy, well, I suppose we say that there needs to be accountability in terms of spending, in terms of reporting, but the information that's collected from beneficiaries should only be what is necessary for the purposes of a project and it shouldn't be shared beyond what those people have consented to or it shouldn't be shared at all if it's not really necessary to achieve larger purposes. Um, So embedding privacy within the projects themselves doesn't detract from the transparency agenda. In fact it makes the organisations themselves more accountable to those communities. Mm. Could you give me an example of that, of the right kind of embedding? Um, Without necessarily mentioning a given organisation, because that might itself be true. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Well, I think at the moment, so many organisations are really grappling with how to do this, because traditionally, aid was being delivered um, and monitored in a very kind of paper-based way. So surveys would be carried out of beneficiaries, information would be sent back to head office, stored in a filing cabinet, um, and the, the sort of privacy implications weren't so severe, Whereas now, because the data is being collected digitally um, and being combined with other data sources, a range of new ethical considerations come into play. So I can't point you to a specific organisation that's doing great work in this field, but there are a number that are now developing 
policies in this area and really thinking critically around it. Mm. We're part of an initiative that's looking at how data generally can be used responsibly and I think and there are a number of initiatives in this area looking generally at responsible data use and I think that these will eventually build into a movement that will filter down and up in the development and humanitarian mm. context. Great. And are there particular countries where Privacy International is represented or is doing this kind of work? Uh, well, we have an organisation, we have a, a network of partners who we work with um, in I think 20 countries. I think that's right. Mm. Um, and they are not all privacy rights organisations, so some of them are digital rights organisations and more focused on internet governance. Um, and we sort of help to, as we, I understand we train activists in some of these organisations in terms of raising awareness around surveillance. That's a new project that's just started up. I'm actually not involved with that, so I can't speak mm. authoritatively on its content. But also we help them um, just to link together and form a network where people can talk to each other and find out what's going on and share common practices, best practices. Um, that's particularly relevant in the context of data protection. Mm -hmm. um, where we're seeing a lot of countries now adopting data protection legislation or setting up data protection commissions um, and trying to kind of share best practices around how to interact with those authorities mm -hmm. or the system, mm -hmm. yeah. I think there's, there's a growing awareness both in these countries themselves um, and also with international organisations that with the growth in the amount of data that's out there especially with the advent of, of faster internet and there's more and more lives are being lived online that there has to be great awareness of data protection and just general policies surrounding privacy and data and this is part of the reason that to to train um, either other NGOs or other organizations in this area but also to feed into international organizations as they begin to turn towards this topic uh, mm -hmm. which might be quite fresh for them um, often they're obviously more focused on the immediate response they might need in, in uh, humanitarian crises but this is a topic which is at the forefront of many issues at the moment and equally will will be extremely important from now on hence their uh, development of, of policies in this. Could you offer an example of one of the issues that's floating around at present, one of the kind of hot issues that people are talking about that's animating this debate, this concern? Well I think um, the most kind of obvious answer to that is that the Snowden revelations have kind of pushed data and personal information used by governments just out into the public debate. Um, it was really striking, I was at a side event for the Human Rights Council last week in Geneva where they were looking at um, the Council of Europe's Convention on Data Protection and everyone in the room was talking about Snowden. Mm. It was really quite amazing and saying, you know, we need to be we need to rebuild trust in populations. And I think that there is this awareness that um, the kind of accountability hasn't been there for some of the practices that were being undertaken and that this translates more broadly into an agenda of better data protection, particularly in the European context where it's sort of almost like an obsession. Yeah, and I guess that's long been an EU and EC concern, hasn't it actually? Yeah. Much more than in the US, although the right to privacy is deemed to be implicit in the Constitution, mm. Justice Brandeis and, for example, the right to choose being crucial in terms of privacy mm. questions. Mm -hmm. yeah. We don't really have a body of law that's 
formally supports this in a statutory way in the sense that I guess you in Europe do, right? Is that fair to say? In terms of data protection? Well, no, just privacy in general. But but data protection, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think um, we, we had a project here last year that was looking at how privacy is protected in the world's constitutions. And there are around 45 countries that actually have a specific provision relating to the right to privacy. A much larger number, nearly 190, that protects, um, you know, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure or something along those lines or, um, you know, privacy in your own home. So I think there is a lot there. There, there are a lot of domestic constitutions that protect the right, a lot of domestic legislation, but also numerous international instruments that specifically articulate the right to privacy. Um, but you're right that the content of it hasn't been well understood or thought about for a very long time. Um, and there was a report just last year by the Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression making that very point that understandings of privacy really haven't been um, yeah, at the forefront of human rights debates or more generally in society and that now it is reaching that sort of level where everyone is wanting to figure out what privacy means in the modern context. There was, I think, a good, a good phrase that has been used quite a lot by many politicians, especially in Europe, is that a lot of the, a lot of the laws are, are analogue laws written for a digital age. So they're not, even though they might only be 10 to 15 years old, if you think back what our phones were like 10 or 15 years ago, the, the speed and the evolution of technology, you can only see that in, in a legal context, if our data protection laws are anything to do with the right to privacy, they might be much, much older than that. They could not have possibly foreseen um, the way we live our lives now. And I think that, just dropping back to the, the Snowden revelations, at least what it has done in the past, these might have been very edge cases or they're on the periphery, but now they are very much front and centre of, of issues that need to be dealt with. And so at the very least, you see in other countries, they're having a debate on how much data we put out there on a personal level or where it's stored. Does it go to a company or does it go to the state? They are important issues that are now at the top of the agenda, which is refreshing to see. So it now just takes the, the next step of seeing where our governments go. One of the things that strikes me because of all my years in the US is that there the anti-governmental sentiment is so powerful that the obsession with not just Snowden's revelations about the NSA, I have to say none of which surprised me or anybody I know yeah. um, in detail or in yeah. general, has fueled the notion that this is all a problem of government. Yeah. Whereas for me, the most frightening thing in the United States is corporate knowledge. And yeah. I've heard you, Anna, talk about, for example, Walmart knowing whether people are pregnant and utilising this marketing this as marketing information and thereby mm. alerting, perhaps inadvertently, family members, postal workers, who knows, to the mm. fact that someone's pregnant when the person may not wish for this to have been... No, and so my scary object in much of this is how to protect myself from unwanted crap mail, but also knowledge about me, supposed knowledge about me as a consumer. It's not just Big Brother. Yeah, exactly. It's me. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, I think these discussions around so-called big data are, again, also reaching the public consciousness, whereas perhaps these algorithms that have been developed over the last few years and used ex exactly in the way you described to market products to people, um, to target services at them. Yeah, uh, the, the awareness around those techniques is only really becoming, it's only really um, increasing now. 
we've seen the, I guess you call it the monetization of, of data, and whether it's for advertising or sharing between companies, it's, it's essentially our data, our communications to each other. But we've also seen, for example, if large corporate entities have used justifications for saying, this is why we need your data, this is why you're submitting it to us, then governments later on down the line are saying, well, we're doing this too, but you said it was okay for the corporate entities to do it, what is your problem with us doing it? So that now the governments are, are using the corporate reasoning to use for theirs, which is a worrying development and it's an argument which can't really hold up. Yeah, you sort of see people saying things like, well, if I give this information to Google, well, what's the harm of the, go of the government having it too? It, it, almost a sort of, I don't know if you'd call it lazy, but a, a, a kind of seeding over or something mm. that you, you don't need to seed over. That's interesting, very interesting. And what about public opinion in all of this? What about the argument that I used to find with lots of students in the United States? I don't want the government to know things about me. Mm. I don't care what corporations know. Or it doesn't matter what's known. If you haven't broken the law, mm. who cares? Well, I think on, on the first part, I don't mind if, if corporations know, so long as the government know. I think we've seen with what's happened with Snowden is that the governments are tapping into the databases and the servers of, of corporations. So just because Google has your information doesn't mean that the American government hasn't already gotten it through either requesting it legally or going into it illegally and, and hacking their system. So simply the fact that you can try to distinguish one from the other is not really possible anymore. Um, things that we thought were impossible 10 years ago, we find out now that they have actually been ongoing. Um, so I think that would be a, a risky belief to have, especially after these revelations. Mm -hmm. um, what about the one that says, I drive on the correct side of the road, I don't steal, I'm not a terrorist, mm -hmm. therefore it doesn't matter what's in there. The only people who worry about this have got something to hide and they're risks to us and all of that, that kind of, I mean is that something you guys run up against in terms of public opinion position or is that just not so likely that they know writing people? Yeah. Like in a Daily Mail reader, leaping in front of the microphone, shouting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this it's, it's a pretty standard uh, first position to take if someone is actually not even interested in the topic mm. that much because it doesn't personally affect them. I've got nothing to hide, why should I worry? But it's really, it's not... People, there's two, two points to it. Often those that say you have nothing to hide, don't worry, they often have something to lose if people begin to take the privacy seriously, whether it's a corporation. But also it's quite a, it can be a little bit patronizing to, to hear that because your private life, your, your home life, your private sphere, it, it, it's implication that you have something shameful, you have something to, to keep prying eyes away from and that you're afraid that somebody looks into. And that's pretty, it's a pretty bad state of affairs if we're getting to the point where we're supposed to be ashamed of having any sort of private life. Mm. Um, I, think, I think also if you legitimately don't care at all about your privacy, you should at least care about that of, of other people and want to see strong protections in place to ensure that people, for example, who hold dissenting opinions that might not be very popular, um, have their right to privacy respected as well. That it's not just about you as an individual and whether you think, oh, I have nothing to hide. While others, it's not that they have something to hide, but it's something that they want to keep private and you shouldn't be imposing your, well, I've got nothing to hide, so everyone else should just be totally transparent as well. Yeah. So 
Moving on from that, uh, just going back to some of the things you're working on, and in addition to the aid mm -hmm. question, I think there are a couple of other topics. Um, the other project that I work on is also one that's relatively new here and which stems partly out of the Snowden revelations. We call it our Eyes Wide Open project, which is a reference to the Five Eyes intelligence sharing arrangement, which is um, an arrangement formed after the Second World War between the US, the UK, and then later had Australia, New Zealand, and Canada added onto it as sort of colonial friends. Um, exactly, exactly, right? Um, and for as a matter of historical anomaly, they've continued in with that. Um, so you see my own country, New Zealand, part of this totally bizarre arrangement um, to this day. We're basically the signals intelligence agencies of those five countries cooperate to such a degree as they're almost um, indistinguishable. So the project is sort of trying to think of ways in which to challenge the legal basis and operation of that arrangement. I mean, we see it almost as a form of, of law that's been created between these countries, practice, norms, but that, for which there is no accountability domestically. The contents of the historical agreement were only made public in 2010, um, and the documents that were released only went up to the mid-1950s. So since then, there's obviously been a lot of new agreements between the countries and practices that have emerged about the way that they share um, the, the intel not only the t intelligence that they generate, but um, all of the sort of initial data that they collect. Um, and we've seen with the Snowden revelations that this network is collecting the vast majority of internet traffic, that it's, it's seamlessly sharing that between partners, and there's, there's no accountability for it. But the next point I suppose you'd ask as well, where to from there? And the answer is the project is in its formative stages, so we're trying to kind of work out um, what we can be doing in a concrete way. But Ken's actually involved with the UK sort of aspect of that, the Don't Spy On Us campaign. Yeah, again, that's, that's a fairly recent uh, response to um, something similar that would have happened in the United States with a great pushback towards the, the US government and the intelligence agencies um, raising awareness of it. Something similar is occurring here in the UK. There's been a noticeable difference in in attitude towards the debate that's happening in the US. It's been much more open and forthright at both public level and at a governmental level. Well, in the UK it's been much more silent. Yeah. And a lot of NGOs, um, traditional human rights NGOs, digital rights, free expression, uh, beginning to come together and to do much the same based on what the, the US model is, is doing. But again, early stages of that. NGO non-government organisation. NGO non-government organisation. Um, yeah, so as Anna said, early stages of that. But it'll be interesting to see, especially there's a, an election next year in the UK. So we'll see how, how much of an issue this can be put onto the agenda. Mm. Um, one of the other uh, projects that I actually work on is um, called the Big Brother Incorporated Project, which has been going on for mm, two, three years, I think, at least. Um, and that's to do with how private companies, so technology companies, quite small and very flexible and mobile companies based in very developed Western countries, so the UK, Germany, uh, the United States, Israel, etc. Also some in China and, and, and South Africa. Um, how they develop, build, export, sell uh, what are called sur surveillance technologies um, to basically any government that wishes so. 
um, with a few caveats of they are internationally recognized governments and they're not under UN sanctions. So what would happen is a, a company could develop a piece of software or a piece of hardware, for an example, a malware, malicious software, where you inadvertently click on a link that was emailed to you and your computer or your phone, your devices get infected with this. You'll never know it, but that company will have sold that malware to a foreign government and that could then that government could then use that to spy on political opponents, human rights activists, journalists especially. Um, it can copy all of your, your hard drive, your emails, uh, break any encryption, so Skype calls, and it can even some of them can even turn on the camera and microphone of your device without you knowing on it, so it means it can record conversations or tag your location and take photographs of you. So this, these types of, of companies that, that sell these technologies um, can make quite a lot of money off it. It's, it's a very large industry. It's worth about $5 billion a year. It's a global industry. And it's, it's, it's something which poses great risk to both ordinary citizens as well as those others that I've mentioned already. And of course, it can also use the computing power of your laptop or desktop mm -hmm. or whatever for its own purposes, that's the other exactly. thing. You're, you're pushed into a network exactly. that you are inadvertently paying for and losing power towards. Right? Exactly, yes. I mean, there is no consideration for the victim in, in this case. It, it is simply extracting data, and it's not just your data. It might be your friends if you were on Facebook. They are now all targeted in this. Your email chain, your contacts, your phone calls. It is a wider circle. It's not just you, it's your family, your friends. So these are, again, as the technology has progressed so quickly, um, this industry has flourished. And I think governments are beginning to pay attention to it, but again, they're turning slowly uh, as wider data issues and privacy issues have, have come to the fore. But we have seen over the past few years that in places in, in several Middle Eastern countries, um, they have found files uh, after the Arab Spring in the security services. They would have found contracts and... Um, breakdown of, of costs and pricing showing that certain governments have purchased this technology from that company which might be based in the UK or Germany and unfortunately domestic governments have a tendency to say that's just not, nothing to do with us that's just a company's business relationship. There's an interesting palimpsest here it's not absolute but approximate with the arms trade mm. it's many of the same countries that are leading vendors of Material yeah. and also involved in some yeah. of this stuff. Yes, I mean, it would come from the most developed countries, so those that have the well established technological capacity, innovation, um, a ready supply of uh, knowledgeable engineers and software designers, which often it, it, it's, um, it's in line with the traditional arms industry in that the fact that there's a lot of money pumped into it and it speeds up the development and it's, a legit, you know, it's, it's seen as a quote unquote legitimate industry for many Western countries. So it's a, you could call it almost a spin-off based on modern technology that this type of uh, surveillance technology industry has, has developed as well. And what are you guys trying to do against this, given the campaign's been mm. going, you said two or three, maybe four years, mm. presumably you've got some strategies and tactics. Yeah, the first, the first part was, was trying to collect brochures from these companies that exhibited freely at trade shows around the world and building a, a reservoir of, of information and, and understanding of what the capabilities of these technologies do 
and then trying to investigate on where they're found. So whether it's through investigative journalism or post-Arab Spring revolutions where these documents are uncovered, it's linking companies, their technologies, and these countries. And then going back to their country of origin, so if it's companies in the UK or in Italy or Germany, it's calling on those domestic governments to institute proper controls on whether they can export those technologies. And then, because most of the time they're not controlled at all, you don't need a license to export it until very recently. But even beyond just saying you need a license to export it, it then becomes an issue of, are you okay with this type of company operating in your country? Does this adhere to what you proclaim internationally and sticking to human rights? Oftentimes they're not, and I think governments are being put in a bit of a sticky situation where they're going to have to act on it, but they're trying to figure out how. So that's what we're pushing governments to do now. We've seen certain countries really take action on this. Um, Switzerland has been a little bit of a safe haven for these companies recently, but this year... I think it's got a bit of a history. <laughs> it does, which is why it's interesting when they were one of the first ones to come out and say, we don't really want these companies here, so we're not going to... Uh, yeah, we're not going to approve these licenses. So the companies had to basically withdraw all their applications and move somewhere else. So it's interesting that a little country which you know of Switzerland with its history of very open business and, and very pro, pro-business attitudes has been one of the first ones to turn around and, and make a stand on this. So we're hopeful that other countries, especially in the EU, will begin to kind of push forward on this. I guess it's also got a so-called privacy history, the numbered Swiss bank account. Yeah. Ironically, yes. <laughs> I think um, you know a key, an interesting part of this campaign is really that surveillance by its nature takes place in the dark, that you don't know that it's going on. And by revealing the existence of these technologies, the companies that are working, even just by putting all those brochures out on the internet and letting people see what, what the technologies are and what can be deployed against them, you, you create a momentum towards change. So a lot of it is just about finding the information and putting it out to the public and saying, hey, look at this. Is this actually what you think should be going on? And how do you do that? What's your dissemination method? Not just in this case, but more generally. How does Privacy International get known? I mean, we had a... um, a, I'm not sure if you're maybe a better place to speak on it than I am, but there was a case a few weeks ago where... um, there was a there was a, a refugee based in the UK from from Ethiopia. He he fled persecution and harassment back in Ethiopia, and I believe he was part of a, a political opposition group in exile. And interestingly, only through sheer chance of actually reading a report that was published online by a, an institute in Canada that had that details and analyzes the um, the technology, he found I think I believe he found his picture in one of these these uh, these reports saying. In an email, his picture was used almost as bait to target other people within a political movement. And by clicking on the document, they had managed to download this malware and become infected themselves. And it was only after that that he realized he'd better get his computer scanned and and analyzed. And I think he, uh, I believe there's a complaint lodged in the UK with the National Cybercrime Unit. Cybercrime Unit, I think, of the NCA. Pushing forward for an investigation, it's it's the National Crime Agency. Mm-hmm. I believe they, they, it's the new one that has taken over from SOCA in, in the UK, um, and the, there is a criminal investigation um, underway there to establish whether um, any of his rights were breached in the UK while he was resident in the UK and his communications were intercepted. So it is either through, <coughs> excuse me, is either through research conducted by university researchers or uh, investigative journalism 
um, other analysis of technology that, that, that comes to us through these brochures or actually analyzing technology streams that we find like the code and the malware um, and then disseminating that to interested journalists, to human rights activists, wider um, dissemination to people like we mentioned earlier on in other countries, training them of, of issues to be aware of and what actions and steps they can take to protect themselves. But it, it kind of grows exponentially, which is, which is the key really. And if we can still think of a left-right continuum, sure. when it comes to rights to privacy, yeah. where do people tend to fall? I mean, are you getting donations from the Daily Mail, the Daily Express, <laughs> the readership, or the Grawnier readership in British terms? Um, when it comes to the United States, because of abortion, this tends to be mm. a feminist and leftist yeah. concern in many, many ways. Mm. Here in Britain, we've I think it's fair to say that in terms of whatever GCHQ stands for, government communications headquarters, right, which is the, the place that spies yeah. on um, the UK's NSA, yeah, yeah. right, the, the, the place that spies on people here, mm. and, it's, and it was built with US money. Yeah. yeah, I think the anxiety about it that's been expressed in the bourgeois media here has largely been from the left. Mm. Mm. Um, but I'm wondering whether that continuum functions in any particular way in terms of these concerns either here or where you guys are from or where you've done your work? I think in the, in the UK perspective there has been a mix. Uh, for, its, for its own reasons it has been heavily um, taken with The Guardian so I think there's a, a more natural liberal leaning um, angle to this but we've also seen much more civil libertarian groups take this issue up of the domestically in the UK of, of warning against government overstepping its bounds um, and, and it's, it's refreshing to see a mix of the more traditional left and the more traditional right coming together in certain circumstances. It doesn't happen often, yeah. but in the things of in the issues of privacy and, and government overreach, it's one of the few areas where it does crisscross. So both left and right do come together for their own reasons. Uh, it just happens to coincide. It's a, it's a nice Venn diagram overlap, I think. <laughs> in terms of our organisation, um, I don't... I don't think that you can say that we have donors who, you know, predominantly one or the other. Yeah, thing. I mean, most of um, most of our funding comes from foundations, like the Open Society Foundation. Mm. Um, George Soros regarded in, in the United States, of course, as basically a Marxist. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I, th I, I think pretty much every NGO and non-governmental organisation in London has a little bit of Soros money behind them. Um, as well as uh, other organisations, mm. um, we such as the Swedish Development Agency. So we do receive some funding from government organisations. And they're all communist in the entire Nordic world. Um, is a basically, a Marxist plot. So I do you know, already. I'm sorry, you're not helping me call it. And another large funder is the uh, Research Institute in Canada um, that helps mm. us in this work. And right, and they have public medical. Yeah, I know, I know, right? Um, we, also, we also receive um, donations from private individuals, but we have a policy of never accepting any money from um, companies. So, um, just in order to maintain neutrality. And yeah, I mean, we, we wouldn't take money that would compromise our work with that way. And I mean, the money that the, the, the foundations that Anna mentioned, they would be very specific project-based work, um, whether it's for... Um, 
in development, developing world privacy issues. Uh, so it's it's very allocated towards a very specific stream of funding. And mm. um, but uh, I mean, we would also get, you know, because a lot of our of our support base could be more digital rights organized um, mm -hmm. orientated. We do get individual donations, small donations from people and whatever their political leanings are, there's a diverse funding base there, mm. Mm. both large and small. And because the law is obviously very important in this, both L-O-R-E and L-A-W, those little homonyms <laughs> that are constantly running around one another, uh, one inflects uh, the other, how important are legal issues here and how important is it to take on the one hand the letter of the L-A-W but then evaluate it in the context of what actually happens. Mm. There are so many places that have great legislation on the mm. books and it's completely meaningless in terms of the experience of everyday life. I'm not referring to privacy, but in general yeah. terms. Well, I think it's a challenge that a lot of human rights organisations face, that it's, it's not easy, but it's easy to get a statement in writing that reports principles or that says that you ought to be doing certain things. But translating that into action and monitoring and following through on the implementation is the really difficult part. So I don't think there's a good answer to your question in the sense that it's just continual work following up with people, um, particularly the partner organisations that we work with are doing just that, monitoring their own laws in the LAW sense <laughs> and seeing what they translate to on the ground. As I mean, ironically, many of the constitutions that seem to have the strongest protections for human rights or, and the right to privacy are, exist in some of the most repressive regimes. So it is exactly creating a culture of human rights, including the right to privacy, that is our ultimate goal, I suppose. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, getting, getting governments to um, have their actions adhere to their statements is always a tricky, it's, it's always a, a difficult business to be in when you're a non-governmental organisation, but it's it's what we aim for, it's what we strive for. And whether that's done under the LAW or whether you actually have to go meet with them and talk to them in a, in a non-legal sense, in a simple in a political sense, and say, look, you, you've said you promote human rights abroad, but you're not really doing it. So you know it's time to step up to the mark and actually adhere to it. And if you do that often enough and, and hard enough and with a loud enough voice, whether it's yourself or with other groups beside you, Sooner or later, they do come around to it. It's, it's a constant battle, but it, it's worthwhile and it does work. What about dealing with corporations directly, where you're using moral suasion mm. political nows, as per the example of this Davis came, but you're not seeking to do it in the legislative realm? You know, getting Walmart to desist mm. from gathering information that it has that suggests a person may be pregnant, for example. Um, I think this goes back to almost your data protection and yeah. making sure they adhere to very strict policies and very strict guidelines with what they do with the data, why they've collected it in the first place. Um, as I said earlier, when when the companies, when the companies, uh, the large telecommunications companies or sorry, technological companies say like Google would have, they would have a global customer base. So when um, they, they find that a specific national government might have disrupted their capabilities to carry out trust, for them to have trust uh, between themselves and their customers, you'll begin to see these large corporations begin to almost take a lead in this, saying, no, we, we really need stronger privacy policies. We, we need stronger data protection. Um, it's in our customers' interest to do that because we will lose money otherwise. So it's, it's almost an inverse that 
it's in the corporate interests to now have stronger privacy policies because they fear losing customers somewhere else that's outside of their their remit and um, so it's an interesting um, post Snowden fallout that we'll see large corporations beginning to unusually side with the uh, privacy advocates on this yeah you would hope so as well because many of these like for example telecommunications companies were sort of almost going beyond what was required of them in handing over information or allowing interception by um, the GCHQ or the NSA. So the sort of willingness to always be helpful to state authorities, I think, is now diminishing um, in light of realising that they've, they've really breached their customers' trust and it's going to take some effort to rebuild that. I hope it's also as a side effect made people, people realise that things like Google and Twitter are basically communications corporations. Yeah. Um, I mean, if yeah. you if you take even recently, there I think the, the Facebook purchase of, of WhatsApp for I believe it was nineteen billion dollars, give or take. Um, <clears throat> I think within a day or two, several million people left WhatsApp and went to another provider which professed stronger privacy issues. That's the type of of, of I guess corporate behaviour that, that, that exists now as well when people make an active choice knowing that there are privacy policies, knowing that there's data protection, they, they go from one company to another saying you're not good enough anymore, I'm sorry I have to take my business elsewhere. So when a large company will see millions of its customers fleeing to someone else, it will be in their interest to take a stronger line. Now we've got about five minutes left because I'm aware you've both got other things to do whereas I'm just <laughs> heading off to the pub, <laughs> um, to the noted vegan pub slaughtered lamb. I wondered if we could go, as they say in baseball commentary, back, 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 and then forward, forward, forward. So the back, back, back is, could you tell us, distill it in a minute or two, about the origin of Privacy International? Sure. Um, well, Privacy International has been around as a non-governmental organisation since 1990, so it's one of the earliest um, civil liberties, I suppose, organisations, or longest continuing civil liberties organisations in Britain. Originally, though, it was quite a small number of people focusing on things like consumer uh, protection legislation and sort of the, the, the early, the pre-public internet, I suppose, age where databases were being created and set up um, and no one was quite sure where things were going. Um, campaigned against historically things like ID, ID cards in the UK. And then in the 2000s, um, was mainly based uh, at the London School of Economics, um, so it was sort of two people working there and a few associated staff. Um, and then in the late 2000s has um, blossomed into the organisation that you see right, today. I think it has, it has also reflected the, the shift, as, as Anna said, from say consumer privacy to post 9-11, the way anti-terrorism laws uh, then merged with surveillance and protection of civil liberties, it's taken much more of a focus on, on that as well and making sure that governments don't overset their bounds or really pushing back on, on laws that might be um, attempted to be brought in that, that really go beyond the pale. Now, jumping forward in the last couple of minutes, mm. you mentioned earlier, Ken, that many of the pieces of legislation we see today were conceived in the so-called analogic era and hence have been, in a sense, left behind by technological developments. Crystal ball. What 
is going to things what are things going to look like what's going to emerge in privacy issues in the next five to ten years and what is the alternative to legislation or constitutionalism that is set in stone mm. but sadly the stone way the stone work is giving way well I think predicting the predicting the next steps in, in the privacy world if this was two years ago, we would never have known what was going to happen with Snowden. Mm. So I guess in, with a caveat that you never know what's around the corner, it would probably be the fallout, the continuing fallouts of, uh, from the Snowden revelations to how that links into uh, how the internet is structured, to global governance, um, how states interact and the relationship between governments and their, their people, what, what governments and corporations are doing with their data. It, it's, there's a, a bigger debate happening um, and it's it's transnational. It's it's the reflection of the modern world. Um, so while it's difficult to pinpoint things, I don't see anything else. I don't see a brighter light at the moment than than the Snowden revelations. But you never know what's around the corner mm. at the moment. I think there was a report um, by Human Rights Watch. I think it was actually the annual report where they referred to privacy as the right whose time has come. So. There's a range of opportunities opening up now that no one could have even conceived of a few years ago. We see last year the first major statement by the United by a major United Nations body on privacy in more than 20 years. So the way in which international bodies have taken up the right to privacy and started to articulate it in their own instruments and how that will filter through into practice. Um, how individuals will begin to think about their privacy or at least think of the issue of privacy in the first place. Um, these are all unknowns, but it seems like it is a right whose time has come, mm. and we're going to be seeing a lot more of those type of headlines. Yeah. Well, Anna Crow, Ken Page, thank you very much for joining us in the pod, and in five or ten years, who knows where we shall all be, <laughs> but you. I would love for you guys to reconvene to the pod and reflect on exactly what's happened in the interim. That was really informative. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thanks, Cheers.